episode of The Undertow, Arts Journal's new more or less weekly podcast examining the issues underlying headlines of cultural stories making news. This week, subscriptions everywhere. Many of the world's largest companies have opted out of traditional retail transactions in favor of subscription models, whether it's software, newspapers, movies, TV, or even food, fashion, or cars. Subscription schemes are becoming a go-to model, and headlines the last few weeks have been full of stories about what's happening to subscriber-driven companies, Netflix most of all. So perhaps a slightly awkward question? Given that traditional arts institutions have depended on the subscription model for decades, why are arts subscriptions now in steep decline just as the rest of the world has latched onto them as their ticket forward? Is it the subscription model that's not working? Or is it the way that the arts do subscriptions? We'll look into what's going on with Netflix, perhaps the world's largest subscription model, and talk about the trends and where they're pointing. But first, speaking of subscriptions, if you like what you're hearing, want to explore any of our other episodes and be alerted when new podcasts drop, please hit the subscribe, like, or comment buttons wherever you get your podcasts, preferably all three. It helps. So I guess the first thing to say is, I know we all watch a lot of movies, but why should we care about Netflix and the news that over the past few weeks that the company reported a loss of about 600,000 subscribers in its first quarter, which I should point out constitutes less than half of 1% of the 221 million subscribers the company has. Analysts are freaking out because Netflix is perhaps the poster child for a subscription model that now drives and pays for services and products all across the internet. Netflix has seen massive subscriber growth over the past decade, and particularly during the COVID lockdown as people stayed home instead of going out. It should also be said that Netflix has spent massively in recent years on making movies and series as it transitioned from simply being a platform that licensed already made content to becoming one of the largest producers in Hollywood. In 2021, Netflix spent $17 billion on making content, basically allowing it to access whatever talent and projects it wanted. Netflix's spending spree helped fuel a record number of 559 productions across all platforms in 2021, almost double the number of a decade earlier. And over the past 10 years, Netflix has been nominated for and won dozens of Oscars, Emmys, and Golden Globes. So the Netflix model has been a transformative model for the entertainment business. But today, I'd like to expand the discussion from Netflix to the subscription model itself. In the early days of Netflix, the company demonstrated such success for its model that in Silicon Valley, it spawned a whole category of startups that pitched themselves as the Netflix of 
and you can fill in the blank as you want. What this meant was simple. Access to an entire store of whatever you want with astonishing choice for a very small recurring fee. You could apply the idea to anything. Why buy a whole car when you could get access to one whenever you wanted for a fraction of the cost? Or food, or clothes. For a low fee, we'll send you meals and sweaters on a regular schedule. So, as a business model, subscriptions took off. And this was no small achievement. Finally, after almost two decades of attempts to shift the way we pay for things in the digital economy, people's willingness to pay for content through subscriptions has seemed finally to turn the tide. At the same time, paradoxically, across the arts, which have reliably depended on subscription models for decades, subscription sales have been declining for years. The executive director of one major orchestra told me a couple of years ago that subscriptions are just done, finished, and that there's little motivation in trying to cling to an old model that no longer works. Just a couple of weeks ago, a marketing director of another major orchestra told me that post-COVID, and I guess we can't really just say post anything yet, but anyway, single ticket sales had actually rebounded above 2019 level. Subscriptions were basically a dead letter. Now, you can't really blame people for not buying subscriptions to live events right now. How do you know what the pandemic situation is going to be even a month from now, let alone the other end of a season? But it isn't just that the pandemic has been killing subscriptions. As competition for our attention has exploded, fueled by the internet, audiences have been less willing to commit to buying blocks of tickets in advance. This creates problems when you're a producer trying to plan ahead a season and dependent on steady income. Still, Subscription businesses all around us are thriving, even Netflix, in a time of heightened competition. And tickets to big pop concerts sell out months ahead in a flash, minutes. So why are subscriptions dying in the rest of the arts sector? There's a way of looking at the digital revolution in the last 20 years as a debate about how people are going to pay for the things that they use. If you want to really boil it down to basics, there are really only three options. I pay, you pay, or someone else pays. Simple as that. I pay is the traditional retail transaction. I pick out what I want, you tell me the price, and I pay for it. You pay is a little more nuanced. For whatever reason, maybe you're looking to build an audience or market share, or perhaps you're hoping to get me into a relationship with you so you can entice me into paying something more later, the value to you in having me as a customer is something you're willing to subsidize. And finally, there's the somebody else pays model. The classic example of that is the advertising model in which the advertiser pays a content publisher or platform to reach an audience. None of these was invented by the internet, but the internet upended the cost of production and the way people get access to ideas and things. And perhaps most important, change the expectations people have about what they have to pay and how. Inside these three types of transactions are many flavors and hybrids, and nothing is necessarily better than another, 
depending on the objectives. When people talk about disruption of business models brought about by the internet, they're usually talking about something in version one, two, or three that used to work, but no longer does. Perhaps the best example of this is iTunes and the iPod. In 2001, Apple introduced the iPod, which instantly changed the way people got their music. Instead of buying a physical recording such as a CD, Apple sold you a digital file that it could price much lower because it didn't have to physically make those CDs. But perhaps the most important thing iTunes did was reset consumer expectations. iTunes made it so easy to get and share music that people were willing to give up the idea that when they bought something, they had to be able to hold it in their hands. The movie industry was later to the game. They could see that their business was going to change with the internet, but they didn't really know how. But they had the advantage of being able to hang out watching how the music business fared, because in the early 2000s, the internet was actually quite slow. And while you could download a song in a few minutes, a movie would take hours. The movie business, however, had one advantage that music didn't. Blockbuster Video had conditioned customers to the idea that they didn't need to own movies. They could rent fairly cheaply. This is important because when Netflix came along, its radical idea was that instead of going to your neighborhood Blockbuster, you could choose your movie from a vast selection of titles online and Netflix would send your movie on a DVD by the next day. Moreover, you could watch as many movies as you wanted, and there were never any much-hated late return fees. In other words, don't rent a movie, buy access to all movies. Of course, the DVD-by-mail business was really just a placeholder until technology improved the internet enough where Netflix could stream any movie in its catalog to as many people who wanted to watch it whenever they wanted. Netflix, in the beginning, didn't make content. They gave customers access to other people's content and reduced all the effort of getting it to a couple of clicks. The toughest thing about seeing a movie wasn't having to leave your house and go to a movie theater or the movie store. It was actually sorting out what you felt like watching from what seemed like an endless array of choices. Okay, so scroll up to 2022 and Netflix has managed to attract 221 million subscribers to become the biggest of the new streaming platforms. Right now, the competition for streaming services is intense with dozens competing for customers including Amazon with 175 million subscribers, Disney with 137 million, there's HBO Max, Hulu, Paramount Plus, etc. Now most of us have multiple subscriptions to various services so we can see the shows that we want. But the competition is getting too fierce, and Netflix's first subscriber decline, even if it's just a slight one, suggests that the market might be getting saturated. Plus, Netflix's massive spending on producing content, indiscriminately so, has squeezed its margins. At the risk of not being kind, while Netflix has made a lot of quality shows, it's also been loading up on a lot of crap. 
And unlike a streaming service like HBO Max or even Disney+, Plus, both of which are more focused on a quality brand rather than recreating, I don't know, CBS maybe, they're starting to max out on subscribers, which is why the stock took such an astonishing plunge. But really, we're, we're probably at the very start of what will be some consolidation of some of these subscriber platforms. Before I get back to the arts, though, I want to explore another company and industry that has evolved its subscription model for the 21st century, and that's journalism. Now, journalism has always had subscriptions, sometimes highly discounted to lock readers into consuming the papers every day. But in truth, subscribers were never the real revenue engine for newspapers, though they were crucially important. Newspapers were firmly in the someone else pays categories of models. Subscriptions, indeed, uh, even single copy sales, were never the biggest revenue. Advertising was. And it was a really lucrative business. In the 1990s, newspapers were making 20% profit margins. Subscription income? Well, that may be paid for the cost of physically printing the paper or delivering it, but not both. All of the costs of reporting, editing, all the things that actually make the content, the things that people wanted to get access to, were paid by advertisers. When the internet came along, newspapers initially thought that freed of the overhead of printing and delivery, they'd do quite well. Of course, they were wrong. Turns out, once advertisers could see exactly who was looking at their ads, they weren't so willing to pay as much as they had been. Also, with millions of websites online and places you could slap an ad on grew exponentially, the rates advertisers had paid collapsed. And as fewer people were interested in paying for paper copies, the news business collapsed with more than half of all journalism jobs, including those who produced stories about the arts, went away. But then an interesting thing happened. After experimenting with numerous schemes, micropayments, aggregation, crowdfunding, paywalls, events, a couple of very smart publications figured out something. The New York Times, which for the first several years of the digital age even had a separate digital and traditional paper newsrooms, figured out that it needed to be a multimedia company and began experimenting with different models of digital subscriptions. The Washington Post, which had been hollowed to a shell of itself, was bought by Jeff Bezos who had his Amazon platform geniuses remake the entire digital product. And then there was the Atlantic magazine, sold to a new visionary owner who figured out a niche that subscribers piled into. A decade on, and the New York Times, which at its peak circulation in the old physical paper era, had a daily circulation of about 1.1 million, give or take, now has an astonishing 9.5 million subscribers, and with 1,400 journalists, the biggest newsroom in its history. The Post and The Atlantic are similarly profitable and are very much better products than they have been for in a long time. 
Though all three still have advertisings, subscription now takes up most of the revenue. In one generation, these legacy businesses transformed themselves from one model to another, more successful one. The Times produces some of the best journalism out there, but it has also added things like Wordle and Wirecutter and podcasts and games and recipes, etc. The Atlantic has added a festival, does live events, and leans heavily into its various expert personalities. Other publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the Daily Beast, have all found ways to be excellent, fun, and above all, really easy to use. Okay, so that was a long digression, but let's get back to the arts. The art subscription model in the old days, when it worked, was essentially a bulk sales model. Buy our whole season and we'll give you a discount to make it worth it. But when times were good, maybe you didn't get that discount. Maybe it was enough of an enticement that you got your preferred seats or first choice on selecting them. There was a time with subscriptions that if you needed to change the evening that you were going to go, say later in a run of a play, they made it actually very difficult for you. So it was not particularly subscriber-focused. This is what pro teams uh, in sports do when they're popular. In cities with hot teams where tickets sell out, it's often not enough to buy tickets for all of the season. You also buy something called a seat license usually an expensive fee for the privilege of selling out thousands for the season ticket. When you decide to stop buying season tickets, there's presumably a market to sell your license. But this only works when your team is hugely popular, and usually then when you're opening a new stadium or an arena that everybody wants to get into for the first time. But most arts franchises aren't in that position. And Unless you're selling out show after show after show, buying a subscription ticket is no longer a hedge for the consumer. It's a risk. Maybe you didn't want to see a particular show in a series you bought. Maybe there's something else that came up that night that you like better. Maybe you catch COVID and you can't go. Or maybe it's just easier to stay at home and watch a movie on Netflix. The point is, for the average consumer, a serious subscription in a marketplace vying for our attention is more risk than reward. And besides, given the world as it is now, if I wait, I'll probably be able to get a ticket if I walk up to the box office on the day of. But this is thinking in the bulk sales model. Today's subscription models are so much more sophisticated and nuanced. Some people subscribe because they want aggravations to go away, like ads on a website, for example. Some people subscribe because they want convenience, like aggregating content or a newsletter that distills down something bigger. Some people subscribe because they want access. I don't know what movies or music I'm going to want until you make it easy for me to see it all. And some people subscribe just because they want a guide, a curator, an expert, to hold their hand as they explore. Some people just want the ability to explore and be introduced to new things. Leave me on my own. Volvo lets you buy a subscription to their cars that bundles insurance, licensing, 
maintenance and repairs, and even replacement when it's time to trade it in. Blue Apron will send you meals every week based on your preferences. Everything, even the spices and garnishes, arrive in discrete packages with picture book instructions. All of these subscriptions are meant to delight you, to make the experience of whatever it is as important as the thing itself. It's entertainment. It's surprise. It's comfort. It's convenience. It's about making the subscriber better in some way and making it fun in the process. But getting back to the arts. In the arts, subscriptions still largely operate in the bulk sales model. If I learned one thing when I started Arts Journal, it's that it's a mistake to build your business model around only one thing. And as I said earlier, the inducement to buy an art subscription often doesn't make the buyer more secure. It actually introduces risks. Not that all the shows are great, that the subscriber might not be able to go to everything. Risk. That's not inducement. So some ideas. First, how about a transaction platform that works with the ease of Amazon so that transactions can be processed in a click or two? I can preview what I want to see and make it really easy, make it fun. How about if I subscribe, I get access to other things that might be valuable to me? When Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, he had Amazon Prime offer post subscriptions at a discount. If you were a subscriber to a local newspaper, you could also get a free or discounted subscription to the Post. That way, both the local paper and the Post benefited. If I'm a subscriber, how about offering me access to other music or theater or dance by partner organizations? Or access to web streaming of the artist I'm paying to come to see at person in the show uh, who happened to be playing in Portland the night before? How about a team of subscriber concierge curators who get to know subscribers and offer them personal suggestions based on their tastes? One of Netflix's superpowers and most valuable assets is its suggestion algorithm that learns your viewing history and makes suggestions based on it. One of the disruptions that brought about what has been considered the golden age of TV streaming is the online chat services and forums where fans get to obsessively dish and dissect the shows they're watching. One of the internet's most popular classical music sites is Norman Labrecht's Slip Disc, which began life here on Arts Journal. Most classical fans I know regularly check it out. Why? It offers news in the industry, sure, but it's catty, it's cheeky. Gossipy, rude, fun. Readers are addicted because it makes fans visible around things that they really, really care about. I recently started listening to the sports radio station in Seattle. I've been a casual sports fan over the years, but decided after a number of years of not really keeping up that I'd try and get back into the teams again. On the local sports station, they talk sports 24-7. Opinion after opinion after opinion analyzing endless conjecture, confessions of pet passions and hates. It's really fun to listen to people who have passion about what they follow, and not one person's opinion, but many. And they duke it out, and they try to convince one another. By the time you actually get to the ballpark or see a game on TV, you know what to look for to see what matters. 
and you start to have the big opinions yourself. You care. Now, compare this to what the public sees in the arts. There may be one critic in town and little debate. If you're a fan of your local orchestra or theater, you probably don't know much about how the sausage is put together. So how are you supposed to care? Of course, you care about the music or the play, but those are commodities, the things you buy tickets to, a retail transaction. Subscriptions are something you invest in that makes you feel part of something, that changes your life in some way, whether it's new food, unlimited movies, or access to the pool you like to swim in. There's a reason Netflix doesn't sell access to movies one at a time, that rental cars no longer charge by the mile, that internet providers don't charge by the minute. We like predictable pricing. We like convenience and ease. We like unlimited usage. We like control. We like choice. And we like to feel we're getting a deal. Today's Netflixes and Ubers have figured out and fashioned a subscription bundle that works for them. The arts, with some notable exceptions, subscribers are still just retail transactions. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard on this podcast, please click the like, share, and subscribe buttons. If you have any suggestions or comments, please send an email to theundertow at artsjournal.com. I read every one of them. I'm Doug McLennan, back next week.